Hebrews chapter 13. Here we are. This is it. This is what it comes down to. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll start reading in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. And we thank you that this morning, Jesus, that your grace is with us. We thank you that, Lord, it's by grace that we stand, that our standing before you is in grace, that we have been saved by grace through faith, and that you deal with us according to grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect representation of the merciful and kind God. Thank you that you have been so good to us. Lord, if you would count transgressions, who could stand? But with you there is mercy. There's kindness. Thank you that you have compassion on us. That you're like a father toward his children. Thank you that you know we're made of just dirt for you made us. And that you're very kind. And we thank you for this wonderful exploration that we've had in the book of Hebrews. We simply ask that this morning... In our lives, you would help us to finish well as we'll be entering into a new season as a church, new studies, that we would finish well in this one, Lord. Not in form, but in substance in our lives. That having committed ourselves to studying your word, we'd be more like Jesus. We'd be useful for your purposes and your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have been here since uh, the beginning of the study of the book of Hebrews? Raise your hand. Okay, a bunch of you, a bunch of you. Well, today we're finishing our journey. And if you've been here since the beginning, you've been here, including today, for 63 sermons in the book of Hebrews. 63 sermons. Now, the book of Hebrews has almost 10,000 words. If you transcribe one of my normal sermons, it has just about 10,000 words. That's a true fact. The book of Hebrews can be read aloud in just under an hour. One of my average sermons is just under an hour. And I want you to notice that in verse 22, the author of Hebrews calls his exhortation, meaning the whole book, a brief exhortation. The summation is 
that I gave 63 brief exhortations on one brief exhortation. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a typical preacher. There was one brief exhortation and somehow we found a way to talk about it for 63 more hours together. That's a typical preacher in one sense, but in another sense, I see that that is evidence that what is before us is not the word of men, but the word of God. I'll testify to you that in our study of the book of Hebrews, we barely scratched the surface. We spent almost 63 hours of sermons together in it. That represents for me a minimum of 1,000 hours of study time in the book of Hebrews. And I'll testify before you today that we barely scratched the surface. 10 hours, or excuse me, one hour of study time for every 10 words in the book. And yet we barely scratched the surface. We didn't even come close to plumbing the depths of the book. And yet we spent so much time. And what that tells me is that this is the word of God and not merely the word of men. For it is so rich, it is so deep, it is so wonderfully searchable and inexhaustible. It could only be the communication of God to humanity. And what we have in the Bible is the word of God, God's communication about himself to us in ways that we can comprehend in ways that we can comprehend. And what we realize when we say that is that God comprehends so much more than you and I. And yet he wants to communicate to us in ways that we can comprehend. Yesterday, the sun came out for one of the first days in a long time for a little bit. And I was so thankful for that. And it was Saturday, and so I had some time with my family, and I was laying around in the backyard with my wife and my kids and one of our very close friends. And uh, little Daisy Love was running sequences of letters past me. She's only four. So she, she knows the alphabet and she could spell a couple words like her name and daddy. She could spell a couple words, but she, she can't spell many words, but she's fascinated by spelling. Her brother, who's eight, is a very good speller and could spell so many words. It amazes me. He's a better speller than me already. Um, but so Daisy's kind of fascinated with letters and words and spelling. And so I'm laying there in the backyard and she's running these letter sequences by me, thinking that she's spelling words. You know what I mean? So she'd give me a sequence and then she'd say, Daddy, what does that spell? (laughs) And I'll give you a couple real ones. I'm laying there and she says to me, Daddy, what does this spell? E-K-G-I-Z. And I thought for a minute, I said, that's eggs. (laughs) And she thinks and she goes, you mean eggs. You mean eggs, daddy, like scrambled eggs. That spells eggs. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that, yeah, it kind of spells eggs. And she's like, okay. And then she's all, how about this one, daddy? This is a true one. She goes, C-U-I-S-Y. I said, oh, Daisy, that's a, 
that's koozie. She goes, you mean jacuzzi. It's jacuzzi, daddy. That's how you spell jacuzzi. I thought, yeah, that's kind of how you spell jacuzzi. Now, what was going on was being four and me being much older, her understanding is so limited compared to mine. So limited compared to that of her daddy's. And and yet there was, even with her very limited knowledge, some basic grammar with which we could connect. Very basic, but we could connect and we could come to some references. We could come to some meanings just with the limited understanding that she had. This is kind of like our understanding compared to God's understanding. We have an infinite, all-wise, all-knowing God endeavoring to communicate to very limited, finite, fallen beings. And so he communicates to us with some grammar by which we can connect. We can get some concepts. We can get some ideas. We, we, we read the word of God and we come to God and we go, oh, that's eggs. And he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, father, you mean jacuzzi. And he's like, Sure. Because his understanding is so far beyond ours. And yet the communication is sufficient. But we've got to approach it with some humility. And understand that we come to God and we say things like, Oh, the elect. Free will, predestination. Got it. God goes, Okay. We come to God and go, Oh, oh, okay, Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Nailed it. No problem. He's like, yeah, you got some grammar about it. We come to God and, oh, the cross. Yeah, we got that atonement. We got that, God. And Yeah, you're, you're kind of tickling the surface a little bit. Jesus, we understand him. We got it nailed. We don't have it nailed. We've got some basic grammar with which we connect with God. We have the sufficient and wonderful and perfect revelation of God, but it's given to imperfect beings with a very limited understanding. And so we must always be further searching. It would be a tragedy if my daisy love were to stop at eggs and koozie. She won't. She'll progress in the grammar of things. And someday we will connect on a deeper level through words and their attached meanings. And it would be a tragedy if our growth was ever to be stunted as it pertains to the person of Christ and the word of God. So we continue in the grammar of God, the revelation of God, the word of God. And this is the very point of the book of Hebrews. We had some people who were experiencing difficulty and they were being exhorted by the Holy Spirit through the author to continue to press into Jesus, to continue to go, to press on toward maturity, knowing that they didn't fully get it yet, even as Paul the Apostle said, I've not laid hold of it yet in Philippians 3, but I press on 
And in 1 Corinthians it says, For now we see through a a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. And one day we will see Jesus face to face. And there will be a greater joy, a greater experience, a greater understanding. But until that day, our job is to cling to Jesus in this life. And the author will remind us about the importance of that once again in these closing verses. But before we get to that, he gives us just a few personal details here. We do understand that this would have been sent in the form of a letter. And this highlights for us the fact that God uses normal people in ways that seem normal but end up very supernatural. Most of the New Testament is letters written by men of God to congregations of God. And yet they were more than letters. They were the God-breathed word of God himself. And yet we find these neat personal details and these historical insights. And what's interesting about the author of Hebrews is, number one, we, we don't know exactly who it is. There's lots of speculations, and we talked about it in our introduction. You could go back 63 sermons and listen to that if you want. We don't know exactly who it is, and we don't know exactly where he was. And so some of these things are mysterious to us. In verse 18 and 19, he solicits prayer. He says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you all the sooner. So he was with them at one time. But the funny thing is, we don't know exactly where the congregation of the book of Hebrews is. We don't know why he's separated from them now. We don't know what the difficulty he's encountering is that he needs prayer for and in which he's endeavoring to conduct himself humbly. Nevertheless, he's asking for prayer because he believes, as Christians in all times should believe, that prayer changes things. And then he says, in verse 23, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. So Timothy was in prison. We don't have any historical information about that. And he says, when I come back, I'll come with him. And then he says, greet all your leaders and the saints. And those from Italy greet you. So some personal salutations here. Those from Italy, does that mean that he's riding from Italy? We don't know. And it's unclear in the Greek grammar. It could mean that he's in Italy and saying, hey, all of us here in Italy, we greet you. Or it could mean that he's in some other location and he's got Italians with him. And possibly he's writing to Rome. And so he says, the Italians that are with me greet you. These things we're not sure of, but there's some personal details. But what we do have is this incredible little patch of nuggets in this closing in the form of verses 20 and 21. What we need to remind ourselves of before we look at those is a big picture. That this book was written to people who were experiencing change. And as people, we have a natural adversity to change because change means uncertainty. And uncertainty for most of us elicits fear. That could certainly be a degree of excitement, but oftentimes we fight against change because we're creatures of habit, habit excuse me, and we like comfort. They were experiencing change. The Christian religion was previously protected in the Roman Empire as a form or a sect of Judaism. Judaism had, um, for a time in the Roman Empire, a favored religion status. But now the tides had changed. And possibly under the Emperor Nero, the Christian religion became an illegal religion. 
and Christians were being persecuted. And many, many, many Christians would in the days to come lose their lives in their property, be, in property and be tormented and tortured. So there's some very real changes happening in their society. And at times like that, when we're confronted with change, and especially change that, that has fear as a component, we have a tendency to fall back on what we know, don't we? Do we? We have a tendency to kind of go back to what used to work or, or what was comfortable or, or, or what was easier before. And, and they've got that same tendency. And what they've been going back toward is Judaism. These are Hebrew Christians who recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as the Hebrew Mashiach, the Hebrew Messiah. But now that they're being persecuted for worshiping the Hebrew Messiah, they're thinking, wait a minute, maybe we go back to Judaism. Maybe we go back to the temple and the temple sacrifices and the priesthood and Moses and the law and all those things. They're falling back on what they previously knew, what was less difficult, what was more comfortable. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. I'm writing this book to show you that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than anything or anyone else. And your best option in tumultuous times and difficult days is to cling to Jesus. And he tells them that Jesus is faithful. They will not leave you or forsake you. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is trustworthy. And he's better than Moses. And he's the ultimate high priest. And he and he alone can deliver us into heaven because he's the forerunner who's gone there first, he said in chapter 7. So cling to him as the anchor of your soul. And that's the reason that he's written them this book. And he's telling them, In difficult times, continue to grow in Christ. Don't drift from Christ. Some of us are here today and we're in a season of drifting. Not too long ago, we were closer to Christ. We were more on fire. We were more involved in the life of God. And and we invited God to be more involved in the life of us. Some of us here today are drifting. And the book of Hebrews says, don't drift. Cling to the anchor of your soul. Continue to grow in Christ. And the options are grow or drift. There's no option in Christianity to stay in one place because the forces that are against us are too great. Uh, the, The cultural forces of the world, those things that are contrary to the gospel, not common grace in culture, but contrary to the gospel. The work of the enemy our own flesh and its fallen proclivities. These things are so working against the Christian that the Christian finds it impossible to merely stay in place. We're either progressing or digressing. We're either moving forward or we're sliding backwards. We're either growing in Christ or we're drifting from Christ. Can I get a witness? And so he tells them to press on toward maturity in chapter six. And he tells them in chapter two, he, he says, we must therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay very close attention to the word of God, lest you drift. And, and the whole book tells us of the danger of drifting. And he uses Israel as a prototype of this as a story that illustrates this. That Israel over and over again drifted from God. 
And when they would drift, it would lead to hardness of heart. They were no longer as sensitive to the Lord, no longer as given to the Lord. They were more given to rebellion now. So this drifting, as subtle as it might be, would cause a hardness in the heart. And that hardness in the heart, if it wasn't corrected, if it wasn't repented of, if it wasn't dealt with, it would begin to yield unbelief in their lives. And that's why having rebelled against the Lord several times previously, when Israel got to Kadesh Barnea, the edge of the promised land, they did not enter in because of disbelief. God had brought them thus far. God had parted the sea. God had fed them in the wilderness. God had manifested himself at Sinai. God had given them the law and his presence through the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And yet when they got to the crux of it all, to that pivotal moment in life, they lacked the faith to enter in. Why? Because they had slowly drifted. And so they had slowly hardened. And that hardness of heart had yielded disbelief. And, And in the pivotal moment of life, they failed. And there were great consequences. That generation did not enter into the promised land. They were sent back into the wilderness where they wandered and they all died off. And some of you are wandering today. And in your spirit, you feel as though you're dying. Jesus would revive you today. But the word of God would say to you today, pay therefore much closer attention to what you have heard in this book. Lest you drift away from it. Drifting brings hardness. Hardness brings disbelief. And the frightening exhortation of chapter 6 and 10 is that disbelief can bring apostasy. And apostasy is bad any way you slice it. And so the author says in verse 22 now of chapter 13, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Or perhaps more clearly in the New Living Translation, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to pay attention to what I have written in this brief exhortation. They desperately needed to pay more attention to the word of God in the person of Christ. And there's probably many of us here who would confess today, I need to pay more attention to Jesus. It's just so weird how we relegate Jesus to the corners of our lives, to the fringes of our existence. It's just so strange how we do that. And yet we all seem to have this tendency to do that from time to time. And Jesus would have you get right today. Jesus would have you invite him back onto the throne of your life. If you would just come to Christ today and call out for mercy, he would once again soften your heart. He would break up the fallow ground, the hard ground. He's like the father that's waiting for the prodigal with open arms, who's waiting to fall on you and to embrace you and to kiss you and put the robe of righteousness on you and the ring of love on you and the sandals of freedom on you once again and bring you into a broad place and lead you beside still waters and green pastures and to nourish your soul and to restore you to that place of intimacy where Christ has primacy and where we enjoy life more fully. We need to pay greater attention to Jesus and to the word of God in our lives. And he gives them the final exhortation to do that. He spent all this time 
lifting up Jesus, showing them Jesus. We have in the book of Hebrews, the greatest Christological exposition in the whole New Testament, the best explanation of Jesus found in the New Testament. He's holding Jesus to them. If he could just highlight Jesus enough, they'll be convinced to cling to him. And he gives them one last ditch effort in verses 20 and 21, where once again he says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in form, this is a blessing or a benediction. He's closing the book. And if it were you and I, we would say, God bless you. That's a, that's a blessing, and that's about as far as we usually go. Super religious people say, you know, God caused his face to shine upon you, and so on and so forth, and that's awesome. But folks like you and I usually, God bless you, or even worse, just blessings. That, any of you that communicate with me via email or Facebook, that's what I say at the end of everything. Blessings. The author of Hebrew is so much cooler than you and I. So much cooler. Instead of just God bless you or blessings, It's this, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. That is way more cool than the mere God bless you. And what he does here is he tells us three things about God in general. And three things about Christ in particular. About God, he tells us that God is a God of peace. And he's the Lord of life, the one who raised Christ from the dead. And he's the one who works in us. About Jesus in particular. He says that he's the great shepherd of the sheep. That he's the Lord of our lives. Our Lord, he calls him. And he's the one to whom we give glory. He says that God is a God of peace. Now, God has brought us peace, both in reconciling us to himself through Christ and in reconciling us one to another. We now have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Romans 5, chapter 1. We have peace with God. And and part of the goal of the Christian life is to experience that peace in all of its fullness to enjoy that peace because prior to coming to God through Christ, that peace was elusive. That peace was missing. That peace was unattainable. And we would do so many things and creative things to try to get that peace. And it was like the carrot dangling in front of us and we always thought, if I could just get to that next thing, if I could just get a hold of that, if I could just take care of this situation, then I'd have that peace. And we would achieve that and we would get that and we would resolve that and that peace would never be there because that peace only comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? And so he reminds us of the peace of God, the peace that we have with God. But he's also reminding us of the peace that we have with one another. We are stupid people. At the end of the day, if you were going to give a summation of our lives, we would have to say stupid. We really are stupid people. 
We get so worked up about so many things. We're so quick to stab each other in the back, to have malice in our hearts, bitter jealousies and rivalries. It's a daily thing for you and I. And yet through Jesus Christ, we can have peace with one another. Not because of who we are or because of who they are, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Therefore, be at peace with all men so much as it depends upon you, Paul would write in the New Testament. And another goal of the Christian life is to pursue peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We're blessed in this life if we pursue peace between peoples, reconciliation, forgiveness, grace, and an extension thereof. And we've got to make it one of the goal of our lives that we want to be at peace with one another and with others. He's a God of peace and he's a Lord of life. He resurrected Christ from the dead and he resurrects us from the dead. Let us remember that what we have in Jesus is new life. New life, not improved life, not your best life now, new life forever. We have brand new life in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Romans 6 would say, walk in newness of life. Don't walk in death, but live the resurrected life of freedom in Christ Jesus, having been identified through baptism with his death. We are now risen to newness in his resurrection and life. And so walk in newness. Don't do the things that we previously did when we were dead because God is the one who works in you. He is the one who works in you. He is the one who equips you in every good thing to do his will. That word equip in that verse, verse 21, in the Greek was an interesting word and it was used broadly in the first century. The King James Version says to perfect you. That kind of clouds our understanding. But in the first century, doctors meant that word. They used that word to set a bone that had been fractured. Fishermen employed that word for the mending of their nets, which had been torn. Sailors, sailors, excuse me, used that word for the outfitting of a ship that would go on a voyage. Soldiers meant that word to equip an army to do battle. And what God is doing in our lives is setting and mending our broken and torn places. What God is doing in our lives is outfitting us to be used for his glory. What God is doing in our lives is equipping us to walk in victory. What the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish is to set our broken bones that we might walk right with Christ, to mend our torn nets that we might win souls for Christ, to outfit our souls that we're not overwhelmed by the storms of life, and to equip us to do battle, to get the victory over the enemy. What God is doing is equipping us to do his will. He's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, verse 21 says. The work of God in us is that we would do his will and live lives that are pleasing in his sight. And I think the sensitive person has to ask the question at this juncture, God, what are you doing in my life right now? 
What do you want to accomplish right now? Lord, what are the ways that you want to use me that I was previously blinded to? What are the ways where I've been broken and you want to heal me? Where am I torn and you want to mend me? Where am I lacking and you want to outfit me? Where am I losing the battle and so you want to equip me? I think we need to ask these things of the Lord. And then we need to give the Lord time to respond to us. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to be still and know that he is God. We need to cultivate quietness before the Lord. To turn off the radio and the TV from time to time and say, God, what is it that you're working in me? Because the word of God says that he is working in us to do his will and to live lives that are pleasing in his sight. What if we turn verse 21 into a prayer? What if we we prayed verse 21 like this? Lord, equip me in every way to do your will. Work in me that which is pleasing in your sight. Do it through Jesus and in such a way that he gets all the glory. Amen. What if we started to pray that in earnestness? I just had this idea. It didn't occur to me before right now, but you know what we'll do if my media team is listening? We'll pull that prayer off of my notes and we'll put it on the website, on the, on the front page of the website so that you can grab it. And, and we'll begin to pray this prayer as a congregation. Let's do this. Let's start to pray this prayer daily for ourselves as individuals and as a congregation for a couple weeks and see what God does. What, what do you think about that? just had that idea. Let's do that. So we'll post it on the website right after service. Go home, print it out, write it down, whatever. You got verse 21. You can figure it out. And let's start to pray that. Let's begin to pray together and see how God responds. Because I think if we made this our prayer, we'd really be committing ourselves to the work and the will of God. And I think some cool stuff would happen. Finally, excuse me, The author gives us three things about Jesus. He's a great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord of our lives, and the one to whom we give glory. He's a great shepherd of the sheep. That means he's the one who is feeding. He's the one who is leading. He's the one who is loving and who is caring. At the end of the day, we could say about ourselves, man, we're stupid. But we could also say, and Jesus loves me. At the end of the day, nobody loves you like Jesus loves you. And he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's leading and feeding, loving and caring you, caring for you every moment of the day. And the job of the Christian, nay, I should say the obsession of the Christian ought to be to enjoy the shepherding of Christ, to let him nourish and revive your soul by his presence in his word to let him love on you, to allow his forgiveness to permeate your life, that you might be set free, that you might forgive others. He's not only the great shepherd of the sheep, he's the Lord of our lives. That means that he's the one who is ruling and reigning. And part of the Christian life is is bringing the various aspects of our life under the rulership, the kingship of Jesus. Jesus submitting more and more the aspects and the habits and the relationships and the mindsets to Christ's kingship. And the kingdom of God is both now, it is present, and it is yet to come in its fullness. 
And what we want to do as Christians is manifest the kingdom of Christ in culture now. We want to be an example, a city set on a hill where people could look and say, oh, that's what it's like to know Jesus. That's what it's like to have Jesus as your king. That's what it's like to be forgiven. That's what it's like to forgive. That's what it's like to love as a community, to care for one another, to carry one another, to shoulder each other's burdens. We are to exemplify, we're to illustrate, we're to manifest the kingdom of Christ in culture now which means submitting ourselves to his kingship. He's the Lord of our lives, this text reminds us. He's to be ruling and reigning. And finally, he's the one to whom we give glory. To him be the glory forever and ever, and amen, it says. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we work for. And Paul would make it very broad. He would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To live a life that brings Jesus glory. Some of these, the original audience, they would glorify Jesus by being burned at the stake, run through with the sword, torn apart by wild animals in the amphitheaters of Rome. Christ would be glorified. And the church would grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church would grow to such an extent that Rome, which was at this moment endeavoring to kill Christians, would become a Christian itself. And in the same way, we're to try to live lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that glorify Christ, that lift him up, that someone around us within our sphere of influence could see that there is someone greater than I. And that's the whole goal, the point of Hebrews, is to present Christ. In chapter one, we see him as better than the prophets, better than the angels. He's the son of God. He's the heir of all things. He's the sustainer of the universe, the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, the high priest of perfection, seated at the right hand of majesty. He has a more excellent name. He's the one whom the angels worship. He's the exalted king, the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal, the unchanging one, and the ultimate conqueror. In chapter 2, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He's the one for whom all things exist. He's the one who rendered the devil powerless. He is our deliverer. He is our helper. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. And Jesus is the one who is able to help the tempted. In chapter 3, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's worthy of more glory than Moses. And he is a faithful son. In chapter 4, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He's a great high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's the sinless and enthroned one that brings us near. In chapter 5, Jesus is the Son of God, a priest forever, the perfect one, and the source of eternal salvation. In chapter 6, are you listening? Jesus is our hope. He's the anchor to our souls. He is sure and steadfast. He's a forerunner into to heaven for us and he's the high priest forever. 
ever. In chapter 7, Jesus is our Lord. He's an indestructible life. He's a better hope. He's the guarantee of a better covenant. He's the one who abides forever. He's the one who lives to make intercession for us. He is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, the one who offered himself once and for all. He's a son made perfect forever. In chapter 8, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's a mediator of a better covenant. He's the one who gives better promises. In chapter 9, Jesus is the high priest of the good things to come. The one who obtained eternal redemption for us. The one without blemish. The one whose blood cleanses our consciences. The mediator of a new covenant. The one who puts away sin. The one who shall appear again in chapter 10. He's the all-sufficient sacrifice. He's the one who perfects those who are sanctified. He forgives our sins forever. In chapter 12, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who endured the cross for the joy set before him. He's a discipler, the discipler of those who love him. He's a judge of all. He's a blood that speaks better than Abel's sacrifice. In chapter 13, he's the one who will never leave us or forsake us. He's the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one through whom we praise God. Jesus is our great shepherd. Jesus is our Lord. And Jesus is the one to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grab the hands of the person next to you. Jesus, you are all this and so much more. This is just the grammar with which we could connect in this book. And yet you're so much more. Jesus, in our lives, at least be these things. As we have prayed throughout this great book, Be preeminent in our lives, Jesus. Be bigger. Be awesome. Holy Spirit, work all the benefits of the cross in our lives. Apply all these truths of who Christ is to our lives. That we might represent Christ in culture. A kingdom that is unique and beautiful. Work these things in us. We thank you, God, for your word which is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and wonderful. For in it we find Christ. We love you, Lord.